1: And I also want to thank all my listeners from around the world. Never, ever give up hope is now in over 120 countries. And what that tells me is that it doesn't matter where we are in this world. It doesn't matter where we are in life. Whether we are of different ethnic origins or different educational backgrounds, different financial positions, we all, no matter where we're from, have times in our life when we need the message of hope. And that's what my listeners are looking for and that's what my guests are able to share and I thank each one of them each one of my guests has had a phenomenal story of circumstances that they were in that seemed hopeless and difficult to overcome and yet they did and not only overcame them but became successful whether it's in the area of physical problems or financial or emotional or relationship Each guest has had an incredible story of how they overcame. And I thank you, both listeners and guests. Never, ever give up hope. That is the message and the theme of this show. With me today, I have a guest who was in not just one, but more than one, hopeless situations. Her name is Melissa Weaver. Melissa is a licensed clinical social worker who has literally committed her life and her work to helping others. She is a facilitator of grief support groups. She's an inspirational speaker for TMI Consulting. She is an adjunct faculty member at Virginia Commonwealth University, and she provides various volunteer services. Now, sounds like she's got it all together, but in August of 2013, something happened that changed her life forever. She was diagnosed with breast cancer. Her memoir, and I love the title of this memoir Reconstruction Defying Cancer and Building a More Purposeful Life, was written to help anyone who wants to change their focus and their life. And that is what Melissa is going to share today. Welcome, Melissa.
2: Hi, Carol.
1: Can you start by telling us about your experience as a licensed clinical social worker? And what are your areas of expertise? So
2: I began my work as a social worker, it's hard to believe, but almost 20 years ago, which is kind of (laughs) I know, it's hard to say it out loud, but, um, but almost 20 years ago. And when I started my work, I started working with individuals, um, that were in rehabilitation facilities for physical reasons and who had been hospitalized, had come to the rehabilitation facilities and then needed assistance in, in the next step in either leaving the facility or permanent placement. And I did that work for quite some time and I, the majority of my work was with older adults and I really enjoyed that work um, and I actually had always known, I'd always been drawn to working with older adults to the point where when I, when I was in college, I actually chose to live with my grandmother for a year in her retirement facility because I wanted to know what it was like. And huh. I learned so much from that experience. And Tell go us ahead. a couple of things you learned. So I learned, first of all, that it's really important to listen to people's stories. It's really important to hear where they come from, how they got there, what their life lessons are. And so that's one of the things I learned. The other thing that I learned is that community, especially as we age, is exceptionally important. And it's funny because it's exceptionally important as we age, but it's also, if you think about it, exceptionally important at different, very specific areas. So if you think about community for individuals grieving, very important, community for individuals that are ill very important. And and the list goes on and on and on. So those are probably the two most important things that I took away, w- with the exception of the third thing. And that was that my grandmother and I got along beautifully, which was an added mm. bonus to all of this. Um, and I loved my time with her. So after I worked with older adults for some time, I decided that I wanted to work in a hospice setting. And at that time, and still now, of course, you needed a master's degree to do that. So I went back to school and I obtained my master's degree and began my work in the hospice setting and did that for 10 years. I think it was about eight to 10 years. And then um, I, I really enjoyed that work. Um, it, it was a different pace from where I had been, um, because if you think about it, people that are under the care of hospice have different needs. They, they're not trying to speed up to go to the next place. <laughs> I mean, they're not. No, so they're right. they're they're really it's a time of reflection and it's a time mm. of of surrounding themselves with those things that they love and care about. and it's and it it's amazing the perspective that that people gain. So I really learned a lot from that work. And then I decided that I wanted to open up a private practice. So I did that for five years, and I worked primarily with individuals over the age of 10, so anyone that was 10 or above. And my areas of specialty were anxiety and panic and then couples, um, couples therapy. And I loved that work. And it was during the time of that work that I was diagnosed with cancer and so I unfortunately had to close my practice because my clients couldn't wait for that year. I couldn't ask them to wait that long. So I closed my practice and did a little, um, nonprofit work for, for a couple of years and went back to working with older adults and did some nonprofit work. And that was, that was amazing and, and wonderful. And now I'm teaching at, at Virginia Commonwealth University and, I'm working with a whole different population and loving it. And I'm also doing um, the grief work as well that I continue to have done for, for several years now. And so that's kind of where I am in the work that I'm doing now. And I'm, I've loved every single different area. I've learned something from from every different area of social work that I've been a part of.
1: Now, in your grief counseling, are, are you counseling all ages, like children as well, families?
2: Yes, all ages. So the groups, I, I work um, with an organization, it's a nonprofit organization um, by the name of Full Circle. And they're a beautiful organization because what they do is they provide services, grief um, work in, in the area of groups for individuals that have lost a loved one. And and it's just amazing the work that they do and the fact that not many organizations provide this service. And in the... In the Richmond area, which is where I'm based, there really, there is not another organization that's doing this same work in this broad sense because they work with different populations. Uh So, so, so I've had the opportunity to work with people, um, in the perinatal loss area. I've worked with individuals, um, in the suicide loss area. I've worked with individuals, um, for, for, A variety of different losses children adults so it's really been been a very again a very rewarding experience and when I say that it's been I've been very honored to be on this journey with these individuals um because they're to be honest with you I can't take away their pain I can't I can't take away what's happened but what I can do is I can walk beside them and that's kind of how I approach that now, do
1: you prefer doing this type of counseling in a group setting or do you prefer it one-on-one? Which works better?
2: I like them both for different reasons. So in a group setting, it, the group really feeds off of one another. Uh-huh. So when you, when you bring this group together, they actually end up being the heart of, of the meeting. I'm just a facilitator uh-huh. because they, they bring those, those connections to one another. They bring that with them in that group and they create this, this community and with individuals you can go a little bit deeper with the grief and you can really um walk them through it at an individual level which is a which is a completely different experience and i recommend for individuals that have had a significant loss i recommend both i recommend both groups <laughs> A group atmosphere and an individual-based atmosphere. However, it is important to recognize that not everybody likes groups. Right. And not everybody thrives in a group, and that is okay. It's okay mm. if you do not.
1: Now, there were a couple – Pivotal moments in your life that we talked uh, touched on a bit earlier. One was your cancer, which of course we're going to discuss. And many listeners I know are going to be able to relate with both of these areas. Now, many women have suffered with the loss of an unborn child. Can you share your story about that, how you got through that trauma, and any tips? for anybody that might be going through that right now.
2: So the first thing that I want to say about the loss of a child, whether it be in utero or whether it be after the child is born, I think the most important thing to remember is that each story is individual. <clears throat> and when I say that what I mean is you'll hear a lot, well well I don't know that I can come to a group and share my story because my miscarriage was at 12 weeks and someone else's miscarriage was at 25 weeks. So I don't feel like I can relate to them Mm. or not only do I not feel like I can relate to them, but I don't feel as justified quote unquote in, in my feelings. And what I would say to that is whether it happened at 12 weeks or whether it happened at 32 weeks, the point is that anytime you hear the words you've lost your child or you experience that loss, you're already a part of that community. It doesn't the time frame is not what matters. What matters is is that this is likely the largest trauma that you've ever experienced. And so it's so we have to look at it that way because if we don't what we do is we alienate people into these different categories and it doesn't mean that that different losses shouldn't be handled differently because I think they should, but also I think it's important to recognize and this goes for, can this is, could be transferred to cancer as well, is that once you hear those words, once you go through that experience, it will forever change you. It doesn't matter if it happens at six weeks. It doesn't matter if it happens at 32 weeks or after birth. So for me, my, my loss was at 16 weeks. And The loss was truly losing a piece of myself. I mean, Mm -hmm. it it really was. You know, I walked into the office the day of my ultrasound, and I had a feeling that something was wrong. I I don't know why. I can't tell you why. I just felt that way. (laughs) And so although the words were not surprising— it does not mean they did not affect me any less. Um, I didn't have any warnings that there was. I, actually, I did in the very, very beginning. I, I experienced some bleeding, but that everything was fine. I was checked out and everything was fine. And so this was several months later, but, or a month later. But point being is that that night I went home and I talk about this in the book. I went home and I stood in the shower. I, I cried in a, in a primal way that I can't, that I, Probably Mm. did not cry that way again until I received my cancer diagnosis and probably still not to that level because it was not only was it the loss of a part of me, but it was also the loss that I couldn't stop, I couldn't prevent, I couldn't, you know, it's, Uh you feel defeated as a parent, you feel like you should have been able to save your child, and I couldn't.
1: Out of control, it's out of your control,
2: totally. Right, Yeah, it's out of your control, and you kind of, as parents, we feel that we're here to protect our children, and I couldn't, I could not protect my child, and so it was, um, it was quite devastating um, on so many different levels. And it's one of those experiences that you can talk about it and you can describe it, but unless you've lived it, it's really hard to get there. And that doesn't mean that, that people can't provide support to other individuals if they have not been there, but it's really, it's really difficult to truly capture the feeling unless you've felt it before.
1: That's very well put. People will definitely relate to that. I can think of so many women, as you were talking, who have experienced that. And there are people who have been cruel in their words because they think, well, it wasn't even born. Like, what's the problem? Do you agree that sometimes they have to contend with that attitude as well?
2: Yes. So, Carol, in my perinatal loss group that I've led, that's one of the largest topics of conversation because women will hear those words. They, they, they will, for the first maybe couple of weeks or a month, and sometimes not even then, they'll receive the support and the empathy. And then after that, not only does it trail off, um, which, which can happen because there is caregiver burnout, mm-hmm. but the other thing that happens is that individuals actually feel that That the person should be able to move on. That it is time to move on. And to that, what my answer would be is grief. And this is strictly my professional opinion. Even though the books might tell us otherwise, I don't feel that it has a time limit. And I don't feel like it should have a time limit. Now, whether we're grieving in a way that is... For lack of a better word, healthy or appropriate, that might be something that we can put we can put a time frame around. But the grief itself and how we respond to that grief and how it affects us from then on and how it how it impacts our life is not something that we can capture in a measurement of time. Because I would dare to say that anyone that has lost a child would probably repeat these words, and that is. Once you've lost a child, you are changed forever. Mm. And there is nothing that is going to unchange that except for having your child back, which cannot happen. Right. So it's really important that people recognize that and they really take that into consideration when they're providing support. And a lot of times it, people just don't know what to say. So what they do is they use humor inappropriately or they try to make the person feel better and say, oh, let's go shopping, that'll help you, or let's go to the movies or let's go on a trip. And what they don't understand is that, that grieving parent only wants one thing, and yes. that is they want their child.
1: Have you ever experienced anybody who has lost one of, say, a twin in yes. utero?
2: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: And is it so the, where one child the has, same? has survived? Yes. And
2: is that the same? I think it is, it is It is. the same, and then I think there are some additional components. One component is, yes, they've lost one child, but the other child um, did survive, so so i think that that's kind of this um <clears throat> mixed blessing for them in that they do have a child but what i've been told by some parents is every time they look at that child uh. they think about the child the other child that should be there and that and what they would be like and how they you know where they would be in their in their in their life at that point right, right. and so I think that I think it's a very special circumstance and I think that it, it's important for families that have lost one twin to connect with other families for that reason
1: very good point thank you another time in your life was when you had your cancer diagnosis that totally was a pivotal experience what happened were you expecting that did you know something uh, was wrong
2: Well, yes and no. So I did find my lump. I found found the lump myself, but I had just had a mammogram, and my mammogram was clean. I had had a mammogram maybe three months before that, and the mammogram did not show anything. That was my first mammogram that I pushed to have early because I had fibrocystic breast, which we'll go into in a moment. Okay. And so I pushed to have that mammogram early, had the mammogram. It was fine. So then months later, I found the lump. And at first, to be honest with you, I thought it was just another cyst because I had had fibrocystic breasts, I'd had, had cysts before. So I thought it was that. It didn't have the same signs. It wasn't a hard lump. It wasn't, it wasn't a lot of the things that they describe. But I decided to mention it to my OBGYN just in case. And I did. And she too did not think that it was a cancerous lump, but thought that it should be, it should be evaluated anyway just to be certain. So I made an appointment with a surgical specialist, a breast cancer surgical specialist, and at that point was misdiagnosed. They really? they she she reassured me that it was absolutely not cancerous. Um and that I didn't even have to have it removed, that it was totally cosmetic. Um so I asked her if I could wait um through the summer because the sur- after the surgery you cannot you can't get the surgical site wet and I was going to the beach. And right. she said, absolutely, you can you can wait because it's not cancerous. And so I waited a couple of months. Then I went back because I was having some other symptoms, which were also not typically cancerous symptoms. And I went back and she reassured me yet again that it was not cancerous. And I left there just not feeling certain I just really really, truly had this feeling that something was wrong so I called my one of my dear friends and she recommended Massey Cancer Center and so I called them that day and described my symptoms and they had me in so that was a Thursday they had me, me in on the following Tuesday and I was diagnosed with cancer oh my goodness
1: what's your first response then because of the misdiagnosis how did you handle that
2: I was angry at first, obviously, because it was misdiagnosed for many, 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 many months. And so, and I had two lymph nodes identified. Well, at that time, it was only one lymph node identified as cancerous. But, and so I felt had it been diagnosed earlier, that would have changed things. But what my my final determination after feeling that anger was, I'm not going to waste my energy on that piece because I need my energy to fight this. So I did not, I did not, um, I didn't, I didn't pursue it any further. I did call the office and let them know, um, what had happened and I, it wasn't the, the best response. Uh, I think the office could have handled it differently, but they didn't. And you know what? The truth of the matter is, I ended up exactly where I was supposed to. And had I found it, had they biopsied, because they never biopsied my lock. That was okay. probably the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. And so had they biopsied it and found that it was cancer, my lymph node was really hard to find because it wasn't in a typical lymph node location, so they might not have found that. So I, I took the the I decided that I would look at it in a way that that this is exactly what was supposed to happen. I was supposed to go to Massey and I was supposed to receive treatment there so that's where I ended up
1: that's an excellent way of looking at it, and I'm glad that you were able to do that. A lot of people would have relished in that anger right
2: well, and i wanted there were times when I wanted to, and there's still times when I think about it, and I think, <laughs> I, think I think I hope that's not happening to anyone else you know um but but what i what I took from that was being an advocate for our own care uh-huh. is the most important gift that we can give ourselves. So, even when someone tells you that it, something is not the case, or even when they tell you that you might be overreacting, you have to listen to your body and you have to push and that's what i did and had I not pushed, I would not be here today i I, I know that for sure so, so i had i had um I had a year's worth of chemo and radiation and um and that was three and a half years ago now and that's such a long process to go
1: through, isn't it i mean like how do you cope with that do, are are you in fear are you in um do you feel guilty that you should have taken better care of yourself like what were the emotions that you were going through during this year
2: so i was a really healthy person um so i didn't have the guilt of taking better care of myself i had the guilt of not pushing even harder to to receive the diagnosis and not knowing to go to this other place to be to be evaluated. Like, I just felt like, well, I went to a surgeon's office, but I should have gone to this other surgeon. And why didn't I know? And why didn't I catch it sooner? And so I had that guilt. And I think a lot of women do, especially mm-hmm. young women, because young women are often okay. misdiagnosed. And I was diagnosed at 37. So young women also oftentimes receive an, an, an yeah, I mean, an incorrect diagnosis. So the feelings I had, I did have a lot of feelings of hopelessness at times, And the reason why I had those was because I have two beautiful children, and I lost a parent at a very young age, and I did not want them to have to go through that. And I felt, again, this loss of control. Uh. I felt this this loss of – all I could do is do what the doctors tell me to do. Well, that's what I thought in the beginning. And we're going to talk about how I empowered myself. But that was my initial thought. And so I felt very hopeless. And I was afraid. Of course I was afraid. I was afraid to leave my children. That was my biggest fear. I was not afraid of chemo. I was not afraid of losing my hair. I was not afraid of losing my breast. I was not afraid of any of those things. The only thing, and to this day the only thing, is is the fear of losing my children, of leaving my children. I just, I I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my brain around that. And so, so there were times where I felt hopeless. There were also times where I was very, very, very sick. And that was hard with two very young children. uh, They were three and seven. And so that was very hard to explain to them. Um, And I started to not look like myself. So that was hard. Yes. Yeah. But then out of all of that came this new person and the new person that started. So my book reconstruction is not about breast reconstruction because I never had it. I chose not to. Okay. Yeah. Because I did not want to weaken my immune system any further with another surgery. So I decided to just wait. And so I've still, I'm still waiting (laughs) and, but the reconstruction, so it's a play on words because you would think that's what it's about. But if you look at the cover of my books, of My book, I, I don't have breast. I mean, you can't tell because I've, I've covered my chest with my arms, but I don't. The reconstruction was within. I reconstructed my, my actual self. I redefined who I was and I redefined myself professionally. I redefined myself emotionally on so many different levels because that's what I could do. I couldn't change the fact that I had cancer and I couldn't change the fact that I needed all of this treatment and I couldn't unfortunately change the fact of of where I was but what I could change that's what I focused on.
1: Focus on what you can change and is that the premise of your book?
2: Yes. um, p- Yes, it is. For yes, for the most part, it, <laughs> it is about I'm, I'm answering that kind of he- I'm hesitant in answering that because it's about a lot of things. It's about really the premise of my book is finding the hero within yourself. So a lot of times we look outside for answers and we look outside for heroes and we look outside for motivation. And the book is about motivating yourself. And the book is about. Is about not waiting for someone else to heal you or not waiting for someone else to identify who you are, but creating that identity on your own. And if you want to change your life, if you're unhappy in your job, don't wait for someone else to change it or don't wait for the right moment. Change it. Take steps to do that. So what I did is I met three professional lifelong dreams within the time of having cancer. One was I'd always wanted to write a book. <laughs> the second one was that I wanted to um, do public speaking on a on a larger scale, and I started doing that and The third dream was that I wanted to work um for Virginia Commonwealth University. I had always wanted to do that i was i 'm an alumni there. I love their program, and so I reached out for all three of those they all all three of them happened at the same time that that or shortly after you know cancer treatment. And I would have never done that before cancer because I would have just been with the status quo. I just would have said, well, my life is good. My life wasn't bad. I had a great life. But I wasn't really living up to, I wasn't meeting my dreams in the way that I wanted to. I wasn't taking the time with my kids that I wanted to. I wasn't volunteering in the way that I wanted to. I wasn't sleeping in. I was getting up every morning to work out, you know, and not that working out isn't important because it is important. It's important to stay healthy, but I would work out two times a day, every day for what result? I didn't Mm. do it anymore because I loved it. I did it because I felt like I had to, because this is ironic. And I really, this is so important. So my family has a very large history of heart disease. And so I worked out and ate a low-fat diet for years and years and years and years because I didn't want to have heart disease. I didn't. I didn't want to have a heart attack or a stroke. Then I received chemotherapy that caused damage to my heart. Really? That put me on cancer on heart medicine. But all of the things that I was doing initially to to create this this what's the word to Protection what's the word I'm or- looking for protection but it was overkill it was i was striving for this ultimate health status so i was creating the stress that i'm sure did not oh. <laughs> help my cancer diagnosis. So it was, it's, it's just this cycle. So what we have to do is we have to interrupt the cycle. We have to redefine and reprioritize our life. We have to say, what are the things that are most important to me? And how do I get them? And this is this where I want to spend my time rather than spreading yourself so thin that you're actually not benefiting yourself in the long run. So trying to get an extra mile in on your run because you think, oh, well, I have to get six miles because I had five miles yesterday. Is that really Uh helping you?
1: Uh
2: Probably not, unless you're training for something. So really, that's what I did. I had to break cancer. Cancer broke me down physically while I was breaking myself down emotionally and psychologically in order to rebuild a better version of myself.
1: How long of a process was
2: that? I'm still doing it.
1: (laughs) I I knew you were going to say that. That's why I asked. In other words, there's no end to it, is there?
2: There is no end and there should not be an end. We should always strive to redefine ourselves based on where we are right at this moment in time. Like I've started running again, which I didn't think I would do. But I only do it now because I really enjoy it and I do a mile or two versus the marathon that I had done with cancer and didn't realize I had cancer. But that doesn't mean people shouldn't do marathons. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I did the marathon and I wouldn't give up. I I received an award too stubborn to fail because I was injured halfway through the marathon and I wouldn't (laughs) stop training. So I went and ran in a pool, but I didn't listen to my body. My body was saying, stop, slow down. And I refused to listen because I had to get to that end goal. Well, Maybe I should have listened to my body more so now I am if my body says you're too tired then I'm too tired
1: who should buy your book Melissa
2: so I think that people I, I think you can you absolutely should buy it if you're if you're experiencing a life-threatening illness absolutely 110 percent for sure on that one but I also think you can buy it for someone who's experiencing that and then buy it for yourself. Even if you've never had an illness, and the reason why I say that is for two reasons. First of all, because the proceeds go to Front Row Foundation. It's an excellent foundation that sends people on the live event of their choice that are battling a life-threatening illness. And then the second reason why I say that is because what the book talks about is everything that I just said. So if you are looking for a way to find peace and to redefine your life and to find balance, and to to find purpose and and to set priorities, then you should read this book. because that's what it's going. that that's the whole premise of the book is is to create inspiration in your own life, to to be the hero of your own story.
1: And what about your website? What do you offer there?
2: So my website is a way to get to know me a little bit better. Also, my website has my speaking engagements on there. And so if you wanted to learn more about what it is I do or if you wanted just some tidbits of information about giving back or about motiv- uh, motivating yourself or or about connecting with the world around you, uh, there, there, there are different speaking engagements that focus on different things. But all of these different things are things that you could watch and gain information from. Because really what I made the decision to do was, after receiving that diagnosis, and after the shock, was that I wanted to inspire other people. I didn't want this, to, this diagnosis to be for nothing. So if I would have just kept doing what I was doing, it would have been fine. But I wanted it – I want to be more. I wanted to be more. I I want to give more and I want to give other people more and connect with people at a different level and a deeper level because really that's what life's about. I mean in the end, what do we want to say that we did with our lives? Mm -hmm. Did we buy things or did we experience things? Did Did we – wow,
1: that's excellent.
2: I mean really if you think about it. Uh So
1: I like what you said. Be more – Give more, connect more, do more. That's it in a nutshell, isn't it?
2: It really it, is. It
1: covers everything. It covers yourself. It covers your motives. It covers your relationships. It covers it all. Thank you. This has been a wonderful challenge for us as listeners, Melissa. You are very clear. You're very concise. You're motivating, definitely challenging, and encouraging in so many areas. I mean, I know that people can pick up at least one and possibly more than one areas that they could relate to so we definitely want to encourage the listeners to get your book to go to your website to connect with you and as you said there's a lot more on there you know that they can tap into but whether you have had cancer and survived whether you are going through it or you know somebody who's going through it be wonderful helps and tips in your book and also survive the loss of a child in utero and helping people who may have gone through that and then just the challenge you've given us for life in general on how to be more, give more, connect more, and do more. Another thing you said that I really appreciated and personally tapped into, and I know many others will, and that is there is no time limit to grief. And what I liked about that when you said that is that many people, I believe, live in guilt because of that. And there is no guilt because we all grieve differently at different times and different ways. And I hope that that message came through as well. There's no time limit to grief and what we have to process. So thank you for all those encouraging words. Is there anything that you would like to add in closing?
2: I think the only thing that I would like to add in closing is be kind to yourself. And we have to start with us. We have to start... I always say on my website... In order to create change, you have to be the change. So if you want yes. to create kindness, you have to be the kindness. You have to start with yourself. And in today's time and in today's busy world, we often overlook that, that person more than all others. So that would be my final thing. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Melissa. You've been
2: an awesome guest. And I Thanks appreciate so much, you taking Carol. your time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.